Our speaker today is a native New Englander, Jane Goodrich. A lifelong love of the 19th century has inspired her work across many forms, forms that seem particularly at home here at the Boston Athenaeum, as a designer, a builder, a printer, and a storyteller. She fell in love with the shingle style of architecture, looking at a book that had belonged to her father as a child, she was growing up in Vermont, and discovered Cragside, the home of George Nixon Black, again as a college student. She and her husband, James Bayor, have recreated the house in loving detail on Swans Island in Maine, writing from a room that sits above the building's reconstructed, celebrated arch, which I know you'll recall from the novel. She penned with an actual pen, the house at Lobster Cove, a vividly imagined and historically astute picture of a man who has long inspired her. Her mark is even left on the cover of the book. Oh, I should reach for my copy. If you haven't yet purchased the book, you'll want to, because I know you'll love this stunning letterpress printed cover. And this was um, a production of the press, the Saturn Press, which uh, Ms. Goodrich co-founded with her business partner, James Van Pernis, who I believe is here with us today. Ah, thank you. Wonderful work. <laughs> um, the Saturn Press produced this exquisite book, and it features, as I'm sure you know, a drawing of Cragside, which Ms. Goodrich discovered doing her research for this book. Please join me in welcoming her to the Boston Athenaeum. Wow. Greetings to you all for coming out on this cold January day to listen to a summertime story, really, of the house at Lobster Cove. It was a famous summer home. To get my glasses now. I could talk to you about writing the book, which Elizabeth has already really told you our, my story of, but I really felt from the moment I wanted to write the book that my goal was to introduce to the world the protagonist of the novel, the real-life George Nixon Black, who built the house at Lobster Cove. I feel that he's a man who needs to be known to his fellow Bostonian neighbors. He's a person who lived just down the street at 57 Beacon Street for 68 years, and no one knows his story until now, hopefully from my book. So my focus on this lecture is going to be talking about him and his history so you can meet someone who you really should know. He was an absolute wonder and a joy to the city of Boston, leaving many of your institutions lots of money and, uh, and objects for which you still enjoy today. He was a great philanthropist and completely unknown to most people. The image here is the house at Lobster Cove. This is a drawing from a modern book, but just to let you know, this is where George Nixon Black lived. It was in Manchester by the Sea, Massachusetts. He lived here in the summer. In, in the winter, he lived at 57 Beacon Street and also traveled about much abroad and lived for one week at his ancestral home in Ellsworth, Maine.
Well, it's hard to know really who he was. Who was this man? I bet you don't recognize him either. You've never seen the picture of him before. This is a small miniature painting. It's actually only three inches high. Some of you will know it was done by the artist Laura Coombs Hills. He was one of the few men that sat for Laura, and he sat for her very early on in her career. In his very famous uh, uh, Russian fur coat, his Russian sable fur coat, um, which she asked him to pose in. But here he is in his 40s, as he lived here on Beacon Street, and uh, he commissioned his portrait to be painted three times in his life, and each time it was by unknown women artists, or very, very unknown women artists. This is interesting considering that his, one of his close friends was a cousin of John Singer's sergeant. So when he had a choice to choose, he chose unknown females, women, and he was a great proponent of helping arts and early artists starting out. Here he is again at age 15. Who was George Nixon Black and where did he come from? He's not native to Boston in the fact that he was not born here. He was born July 11th, 1842 in Ellsworth, Maine. If you have ever, all of you traveled to Acadia National Park or Bar Harbor, you pass through Ellsworth. It's the last city with a great sort of a strip mall that runs through it. But on a side street in Ellsworth is the home where um, his grandfather lived. The family were in Ellsworth from the 18... Well, from 1790, um, when the whole, when the entire family lived there. And he was one of 30 grandchildren of one of the wealthiest men in Maine. This is his grandfather, John Black, who was made rich by the timber trade. He came from England, worked for the Bering Brothers Company, managing the vast tracts of land in Maine, was not content to be someone else's manager, began to buy the timber himself. He understood that Maine was not a place in which people were going to be able to settle. The land was not good. It was not going to be a place where people could farm. He understood that farming timber was where money was to be made, and he was one of the richest men in New England and certainly in Maine. Uh, he made his fortune throughout his life, but by the 1850s, when George Nixon Black, his grandson, was born, he was um, nearly uh, an older, middle-aged man and uh, well-settled and had well made his fortune at that time. He lived in this home, which is called Woodlawn. It is still in Maine. It is still there. It was actually left to the public by George Nixon Black, Jr., who ended up with this estate, actually, through various family uh, chance that he ended up with this estate, and he left it to the, to the public when he died in 1928. But this was his grandfather's home. George Nixon Black Jr. never really lived here. I'm going to call him Nixon now, as his family did, because his father was also named George Nixon Black, so I don't want to confuse the two. So we have Nixon, we have his father George, and his grandfather John. As they lived in the Ellsworth, and this is where John lived in his great splendor at Woodlawn, uh, this, the situation there was changing. Ellsworth was no longer the great lumber um, financial dynamo that it was in the 1820s and 30s. Lumber was being farmed or, or cut in other parts of the country. Maine was quite distant from a lot of places, and uh, competition was becoming fierce. Ellsworth was beginning to lose its, its financial oomph. It was also going through one of the darkest periods of its history. Ellsworth, along with many other coastal towns in Maine, was undergoing uh, know-nothing uh, problems from the Know-Nothing Party. The Know-Nothing Party were basically an anti-immigration party. Uh, the coast of Maine was a hotbed of Know-Nothing uh, supporters, and there was much violence and antagonism toward the Irish Catholic population. This was ongoing when Nixon was a young boy. Uh, arson was going on, destructions of various properties, all kinds of fights were going on at the time. And this is environment to which this young, uh, fairly well-to-do man 
uh, grew up. This is Father John Baptist. He was sort of the linchpin of the, well, linchpin is a sort of a strange word for me to use, but he was the, uh, he was indeed the crux of what happened in Ellsworth at, at, uh, with the Know-Nothing violence. He was a Catholic uh, Jesuit priest who had come from Switzerland. He did not speak English as well as he spoke the Penobscot Indian language, actually. And he came to uh, this area up in Maine to minister to the Irish Catholics, the Penobscot Indians who were Catholic. He rode the circuit in the area, and he started a Catholic church in Ellsworth, which began to... Um, elicited a lot of members, a lot of young people in the town began to flock to Father Baptist Church. This didn't sit very well in Ellsworth, and there were a lot of people who disliked him for it. He became a target of violence. The church was set on fire several times, and he pushed back. He wanted the local um, schools to allow the Catholic version of the Bible to be read, as well as the Protestant version of the Bible, and actually took Ellsworth to, to um, a lawsuit, the city of Ellsworth, as a lawsuit for this this didn't go over very well either, and the city pushed back against him, and there was lots of comings and goings. It did become a major lawsuit, and the man that Ellsworth hired to defend this lawsuit, I am digressing a bit here, but this is an interesting story for Bostonians, was Richard Henry Dana, the man who wrote two years before the mast. Richard Henry Dana was a noted abolitionist and a less well-noted disliker of the Irish Catholics. Um, he was quite happy to take on this lawsuit, and... Um, that it was one, uh, and John Baptist failed in his quest to allow the Bible to be read. He was actually threatened and told to leave town, which he did do, and he was threatened in the newspaper saying if he returned back to the town, there would be bad things that would happen to him. As he rode the circuit, he ended up staying late, uh, months after this lawsuit in Ellsworth, and he was at that point dragged from a local house, beaten, and by a mob in Ellsworth of more than 200 people of the local citizens, and eventually tarred and feathered. Um, it was a big deal. Tarring and featherings didn't happen much then. It was international news of the day. He did survive this ordeal, and he went on to become the president of Boston College. He was... <laughs> he was... Um, dragged from the home less than 150 feet from where George Nixon Black's front door was. George Nixon Black's uh, mother's, his uncle defended one side of the question, his aunt defended another. Their family was split on how, how the, uh, the question between the Irish Catholics and the Protestants. And his own father, George Sr., uh, didn't really want to take any side or have anything to do with it. He didn't want to get enter the fray. But this was ongoing. This is the environment this young man grew up in in Maine. Lest you think that this is entirely local thugs who were in place on this problem, it wasn't local thugs. It was many of the prominent citizens who incited this violence against Father Baptist, and one of them living in this home, the Seth Tisdale House. Seth Tisdale was the head of the school committee at Nailsworth. And I'm only showing you this because this house plays an important thing, part in George Dixon Black's later life. Um, so I'm just showing it to you now. With all this violence going on, um, the blacks decided that they should leave Ellsworth. The family thought they should leave and move to Boston. Another short aside, just so that you know, uh, 
part of an interesting point of Boston history. The man, one of the men who incited most of the violence against Father Bapst was a man named William Cheney, who was the editor of the Ellsworth newspaper, then called the Ellsworth Herald, and changed to its present name, the Ellsworth American, because we are Americans that run this newspaper. We are not foreign infidels. And so the name which the newspaper bears today is actually a know-nothing name. William Cheney was a bit of a nut. He was kind of a crazy guy. He ended up um, impregnating a young woman and leaving, running away from Ellsworth a few years after all this happened. He turns up later in San Francisco, splashily in the newspapers, uh, denying the paternity of a woman who said that she had been made pregnant by him. And he said, no, 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 it's not me. I'm impotent, he said to the newspapers. Couldn't be me. And um, she uh, was a bit of a Kardashian character. She was a crazy actress and was very loud and in the public. And she threw herself out of a window because he wouldn't marry her. Apparently, it was a first floor window because she went on. <laughs> She went on to you know, go over and over in the press inciting trouble against him, and he finally ran away to become a tarot reader and spiritualist in Chicago. Uh, the child, however, was born, and I want you to know that the child was Jack London, the author. <laughs> so, little known fact, and if you want to really think about it, the story here is that um, the grandfather of White Fang who was emboldened by the lawsuit defended by two years before the mast to actually tar and feather the president of Boston College. Just so you want to keep them all straight, this is what's going on. Little known stuff. George Nixon Blackhopper probably knew none of this backstory, but it, this is what the environment was as he was growing up. This is George's father, George Nixon Black Sr. He's as sober as he looked. I've just done tons of research on him, and I can't find that the poor man did anything but work. Uh, he worked very hard. He was financially astute. He said, we're getting out of Ellsworth. This is not a good place to be. And he moved with his family to Pemberton Square briefly and then to 81 Mount Vernon Street, where they lived until the 1880s. He took the money that he had received from his uh, father, one-eighth of the family estate, and began uh, investing it in Boston commercial real estate prior to the Civil War. So you know what happened with that money. The family eventually owned most of Blackstone's market, many properties in Chelsea, lots of stuff up and down Washington Street and here in the Back Bay, all commercial real estate, which has really made the family fortune vast compared to what had been left to them. Um, but this is as he looked, Nixon's father, and he lived here, 81 Mount Vernon Street, which is shown in this picture. When he moved to Boston, he went with Nixon and Nixon's two sisters. Nixon had an elder sister, Marianne, and a younger sister, Agnes. They all moved here together. Uh, the girls were, of course, expected to stay home, but poor Nixon was expected to go enter Harvard University, in which he was tutored mercilessly so that he could. He was apparently a student who worked well, but was unable to recite and memorize, so that was going to fix it for him. He was not really able to do the sort of work that was required of him at the time, which was recitation, memorization. Um, he never got into trouble in Harvard that I've been able to find. There was never any problems. He just couldn't do the work. And here he is at that time. This is 1860, um, Harvard yearbook. He uh, went for one year to Harvard. He failed miserably and was the only student asked to repeat his freshman year. 
Uh, this, you can see his face. This is not a happy camper at this particular point. Uh, he's going through a lot of problems. Couple this with the fact that the Civil War is brewing. This is 1860. Harvard's going through lots of problems with students dropping out and going off to back to their respective uh, parts of the country in which to take sides. And he, I think, doesn't know what he's all about at this point. Uh, let's make this brew even a bit worse by the fact that poor Nixon is also deeply in love at this point. He has had a major crush on a classmate, Frank Crowninshield. And yes, Nixon was gay, which is one of the reasons you don't know a lot about him, because he slid completely under the radar, radar over the years, neither saying or denying, or he was in the newspaper much, written up with his partner at the time, but he, it was a don't ask, don't tell situation here on Beacon Hill in which he just lived along his lifestyle. But at this time, he was in quite deeply in love with Frank Crowninshield. And it is from Frank Crowninshield's Civil War letters that I find out a lot about what happened to young Nixon. His Civil War letters are preserved at the Phillips Library. This is Frank. He, they were both uh, pretty poor students at Harvard at that time. And Frank was desperate to join the Army, as was Nixon. But Nixon's father really didn't want him to go. He did register for the draft, both in, New uh, both in Maine and in Massachusetts, because when he registered, he was sort of living in both places. And he was never called up for whatever reason. He did not buy a substitute that I was able to tell. But Frank tried to get in and really just wasn't allowed to get in, which I studied for some time saying, why is this? Why is this? Well, there was a reason for it, which I will reveal shortly. But he was finally able to win his commission. He was a captain. He served valiantly through the war for four years. He was wounded four different times. He would heal and go right back in again. And this is him um, about the time of Sherman's march when he's um, a captain in uh, the Massachusetts Infantry. Here is his mother, Carolyn Crowninshield. She was a great friend of George Nixon Black. She was mentioned on letters, and some of the letters from her and her family have come down to me to help do research on him. Uh, she, as near as I can see, uh, Nixon spent most of the war talking with Carolyn in her parlor about their mutual love, which was Frank, and um, they, they became great friends, these families. They were along with one another. At the end of the war, Frank was mustered out. He was super happy to be able to um, make complete the entire march across Sherman's March with his leg, which had already been shot twice. He was able to get across. He finished the war. And one of the reasons that he was so pleased to have done this was that he entered the war hoping he would save his own life, something that seems odd to us today. Why would you enter the war to save your life? He had tuberculosis. He was dying of it, and he knew it. And he understood that he thought that if he could be out in the open air, exerting himself in the fresh air, he might live. So it was important to him to finish the war and get through it, and that it might improve his health. Um, sadly, it did not. After the war, Nixon and Frank went to uh, on the grand tour of Europe together, and Frank died in Albano, Italy, outside of Rome, right after the war, 23 years old. Nixon was with him and his mother, Carolyn, which is why the family were so close. So after that, Nixon went into business with his father. They both began working on commercial real estate. They both began buying and managing properties here in Boston. And here he is, we're flash forwarding a bit. He's about 34 years old at this point, at a friend's house out in, um, 
well, this house is actually under the toll booths for the Mass Turnpike right now as you leave Boston, but that's where this home was, and uh, he is playing with a dog. It was a family dog. So all the photographs I've got here I have dug up from relatives, descendants of people Nixon left money to in his will. The way I researched him was I went first to his will. He left, and I've seen less than 12 written pieces of correspondence in his handwriting. I've gone to people he knew and went down from there and found letters written about him, letters written to him or from him, photographs. So you're going to see some blurry photographs because they actually are family snapshots, such as this one. By the 1880s, tragedy hit the Black family in one way. And between 1880 and 1883, Nixon's father died and both of his sisters died. These are the girls here. Mary Ann is in white. She was often always wearing white. She had heart problems and was always considered to be delicate. Um, she did die uh, in her early 40s. Agnes, his other sister, who's the other girl that you see there, died unexpectedly of, um, of an appendicitis. And so it left Nixon and his mother living together alone. There they are. This is Nixon's mom. There's a servant here over to the far side. And those of you who have read my book may recognize the, uh, the St. Bernard's. Hub King is the one in his right hand, and he famously opens, or not so famously, I guess, opens the first line of my novel, Hub King. He was a great lover of dogs and had many dogs throughout his lifetime. However, after Nixon's father died, it seems to have freed him in a strange way. He really embraced becoming the man of the family. And the whole, he and his mother went through massive changes after that in the way that they lived. He uh, came out of his shell. He begins collecting. He begins showing up at auctions somewhat. He begins to be out there more. I hear more about him. And he moves his family from 81 Mount Vernon Street to 57 Beacon Street at this point, 1881. So that's what's happening at about the time of this photograph. Here is um, the house. You, you all recognize this scene. Um, I'm not sure how to use the little gizmo. This little Oriole window that, that's the little Oriole window that sticks out here, that's still there. That's how you can note the house. It's just down the street here, number 57. They lived there until his death, till all their deaths. At this same time, the Back Bay was beginning to become the Back Bay. Trinity Church was being built. He, George Nixon Black, was fascinated with this building of, of the, the new things that were happening in Boston. The fire had occurred. A lot of new building was happening at this point. And he was very interested in uh, taking part in that as a patron. It became important to him to do that. And so his first notion was actually to offer Trinity Church um, a window in his father and his sister's memory after they had died. He did this by hiring John Lafarge to do one of the windows at Trinity. They did indeed complete this project. This is the window there on the Boylston Street side, the New Jerusalem, one of the great masterpieces of John Lafarge's work um, dedicated to George Nixon Black's father and his sister. And that was the first and one of the greatest pieces of patronage, pieces of art that Nixon gave to the city of Boston, this fabulous Lafarge window. At the same time, he thought he might like to have a summer house in Manchester. And to that end, he hired Robert Swain Peabody, an architect who many people say he knew from Harvard. That isn't actually true. Um, he didn't last long enough at Harvard to be a student there at the same time as Peabody. But Robert Swain Peabody was Frank Crownshield's first cousin. And so he knew him from that. He hired Peabody. They were lifelong friends. When Peabody died, 
Um, his children were all left $25,000 in Nixon's will. Um, the family were very close for many years. And Robert Swain Peabody designed the house at Lobster Cove Cragside for Nixon. Here are the blueprints of the house that were drawn. This is the roadside showing the wonderful archway, so famous, a house now. The archway was actually inspired by the arch on Phillips Brooks' uh, house, the, the home where he lived, the parsonage. And uh, Frederick Law Olmsted did the layout, the landscaping on this property. Peabody was somewhat conflicted about how to site the house on the property because there wasn't enough room to turn carriages around. Frederick Law Olmsted actually suggested, why don't you drive under the house? And so then Peabody devised the idea of the arch. This is the ocean side of the property in the blueprints. It was built just as it is. There's, there are no real changes to the house that was built from this. And the archway in a photograph. This is a bit later, of course. The vines have grown up all around it. It's about 1890. This image from Frederick Law Olmsted's archives. And the quintessential photograph of the house that everyone sees. The house was published both in the United States and Europe. This is a page from the American Architect and Building News in which it was a, a double, double page spread. It's quite famous in its day. Drawings by a man named E. Eldon Dean who did lovely drawings of houses in the vicinity and all around. He was sometimes called by people the mad delineator because he worked so quickly. This is a lesser known picture of the roadside of the house. Very rare photograph you don't often see. But you can see it really was out just hovering over the water and quite barren around it and quite close to the road, as you'll see as well. And the only interior picture of the house. Lots of William Morris action going on here. <laughs> was a boudoir. This is the room above the archway. In my rebuilding of the house, this is my library. This is where I work from. The blacks weren't quite so bookish, as you can tell from Nixon's Harvard record. So there was not a great library at Cragside. But um, there was at 57 Beacon Street, but uh, there was not here at their summer home. This was just a boudoir, they called them. Another great change that occurred in Nixon's life at this time was a young surveyor came to work for Ernest Bowditch, who was surveying for Frederick Olmsted and for Peabody. And a young surveyor showed up on the property, young man, and Nixon must have seen him at that point. I don't know exactly, but that's how I can deduce that the two men met. And after that time, Nixon and Charles Brooks Pittman were partners ever after for the remainder of their lives. The young man you see here is Charles Brooks Pittman. He's about 22 years old in this picture. Nixon's 18 years his senior. And they are standing in the gardens at Cragside and they were um, partners for 35 years at this, after this point. Charles had gone both to Stuttgart University and to MIT. He was actually a civil engineer, although I don't think he ever worked because, well, he made a good marriage. But um, <laughs> he never really pursued his career, but he was more highly educated than Nixon was. He could speak many languages because he had attended college in Germany. He has a brief, uh, I'm going to briefly give you a, just a bit about his history because it's interesting again to Bostonians. This is Charles's father, Benjamin Pittman. You can see him at the Salem, at, P, at the uh, PEM up in Salem. And he is, was a great uh, early Hawaiian 
pioneer. He lived in Hawaii. He was the first postmaster in Hawaii. Charles Brooks Pittman was born in Hawaii. And he had three marriages. Charles descends from his third marriage, but, but Benjamin Pittman's first marriage was to a Hawaiian feudal princess. He owned lots of land through her in Hawaii. She was descended from the Hawaiian kings. So Charles actually had siblings who were half Hawaiian. Uh, it's all an interesting thing, but here he is, Benjamin Pittman. He was a bit like John Black. They were very similar characters in the fact that they were pioneers in these places where there weren't many um, other businessmen working. He became quite successful. He uh, knew the missionaries. He disliked the missionaries. He was not one of the missionary families that went there. He was a nativist. He liked the native people, and he had lots of problems with the Hawaiian missionaries. So that's briefly his story, and the story as to why Charles was actually born in the Sandwich Islands in Hawaii. But once Charles got together with Nixon, they really went full steam ahead. Then you see these two men living what is the happiest portion of both their lives. They're intensely interested in the colonial revival. They're rapidly collecting colonial era paintings, silver, portraits, objects, furniture, much of which went to the MFA. And also at this point, Charles is letting Nixon know, your family estate's pretty fabulous, which to Nixon, it was just his grandfather's place. I don't think he really understood that. But Charles said, this is a wonderful house full of its original furnishings. And the men set about to sort of set it up as a museum, I think somewhat inspired by Isabella Stewart Gardner. This is all going on at the same time. But anyway, they were great colonial revivalists. Here they are standing on the porch of Woodlawn in Maine. They actually rigged up a colonial kitchen, a la Beauport, um, and did brought in spinning wheels and things, which of course were never used in the era of this home. But they really did decorate this building with an eye toward um, leaving it to the public, particularly Nixon thought Charles was going to manage it because Charles was younger than he. So there was a notion of opening it to the public er very early on. And if you doubt their uh, fever for the colonial revival, this picture will set that doubt to, to away. Uh, here they are. I can. Nixon, Charles, curiously Richard Henry Dana IV. Um, they probably didn't know any of that at the point, but there they are at the Arbella, the the, uh, the anniversary of the landing of the Arbella in Manchester, dressed up as um, Puritans, which must have given these two boys a laugh. But anyway, um, there they are, uh, dressed up for the celebration. I've never seen anything else like this that they've done, but here they are, this close-up picture. I've yet to see Charles with his eyes open either. Um, but anyway, there they are. And they were very, very much into this at that time period. Now I want to take you back briefly again to Ellsworth, to the Seth Tisdale house, to the house where the man who was very happy to see John Baptist Hard and Feathered lived when Nixon was a boy. The house became available. Nixon purchased it. Never done anything like this before in Ellsworth that I'm, I'm aware of. He was also at that point hiring Robert Swain Peabody to do lots of repairs on various structures and buildings he owned all over the city. What does he do with the Seth Tisdale house? A house where the fight in Ellsworth was over the use of a book, of a Bible. He buys it and asks Charles, who had architectural skills, to remodel it into the town's library, which he then gifts to the town of Ellsworth, saying nothing about it except for here it is. Uh, I think there's more to it than, well, you know what I think, why he did that. He made no other gestures like that whatsoever in Ellsworth. And Seth Tisdale's house remains to this day the Ellsworth Public Library. So this was a period in which they were living the good life. This is happy life. Here is 
Cragside in the summer with its beautiful grounds laid out by Olmsted. They spent lots of time there. Winter in Beacon Street, here we are, right out front, almost here in Beacon Street in the winter. In the spring, they would travel together. This is a newspaper clipping, George Nixon Black of 57 Beacon Street and Charles B. Pittman, who makes his home with Mr. Black. They added that. Are to sail on Tuesday from New York, et cetera, et cetera. So these newspaper articles were all the time. So there was not a hiding of their relationship, nor was it particularly spoken of in any way either. In July, on Nixon's birthday week, they would go and visit the old folks up in Ellsworth, and here they are all out on the porch in front of Woodlawn. Here's Hub King, the, uh, the St. Bernard with him. And then in the summer, they would spend at Cragside. Here's Charles and Nixon. Nearly almost every picture of George Nixon Black has an animal in it. He indeed left great sums of money to the Nevins Farm and the MSPCA when he died. Uh, pictures of interior rooms of the house almost always have little dog or cat beds under the furniture. This is a great lover of animals, and the dogs and cats are always right near him as they are in this picture. So the happiest time of his life. He's very fulfilled. This is a completely different countenance in that Harvard photograph. <laughs> and this life went on quite happily, quite smoothly, quite wonderfully, until 1918, when Charles suddenly died. Nixon certainly didn't expect him to die. He was 18 years younger than he was, and he died at the height of the influenza epidemic in Boston. Although not of influenza, he had nephritis. His kidneys were going bad for some years, and he died, it just happened to be he died at the height of the epidemic, which I imagine must have seemed like Armageddon to Nixon with everyone dying around him, all the things going on at the time. Uh, there was no public funeral for Charles because people were too frightened to gather together in a church. I think today we're all thinking about getting the flu, sort of stand. Anybody coughing near you, well, imagine that amplified. Um, that was what was going on. But here is Charles. And uh, a small note, Charles chose as the appraiser in his will, uh, or Charles's mother chose as the appraiser in her will, Nixon, and Nixon's mother chose as the appraiser of her will, Charles. So these men's mothers also understood the relationship and were confident enough of it that they chose these young men as members, you know, to, to officiate over their wills. So another little piece of evidence that surfaces in itself. Right after Charles died, Nixon indeed had to go change his own will, and it's from that will that I make myself free to sort of tell about Nixon when he hid himself all these years. In his will, after Charles died, he had to change. He had left everything to Charles. He had to change the will, giving different bequests to different people, large bequests to his servants who he loved, many of them. And um, he says in it that he wished to acknowledge the long and faithful relationship that has existed between he and Mr. Pittman over the many years. He didn't need to say anything. He could have buried the relationship entirely. But he felt it important to make that statement, which just makes me think that he, in a different time, would have all been accepted and understood by all of us. So that was in his will. Here he is, very near the end of his life, painted by an unknown female artist named Charlotte Shetter from New York. And if you care to visit him at Mount Auburn, you'll have to look carefully. The grave is about as big as a bread box. This is somebody very, very modest. Every request he gave, whether they were millions of dollars, hundreds of thousands of dollars, they all said, to such and such for the general purposes of your corporation. No strings 
no ties, no asking to have his name put on walls, none of it. And so that is your George Nixon Black, That one of the reasons no one knows him. Here he is working at his desk, and I want to cite to you MSPCA, the MFA, Perkins Institute for the Blind, every hospital in the city, the children's charities, the Colonial Society, Fenway Studios, the list goes on and on. He painted Boston with a very charitable brush. He was worth about five to six million dollars when he died. So I want you to remember him because he was important. Held number 640 share here at the Athenaeum, which he received from his lawyer, Gustavus Arthur Hilton, before him. And he left to Harold Pittman, Charles's brother, who received almost everything in light of Charles's death after Nixon died. So that's Nixon's story. People often want to know about me, so these things end this way. I don't like to talk so much about myself, but I will show some pictures of this. Here's a 21-year-old me, um, much thinner, much younger, with vastly more energy, and my husband, James Bayer, standing in front of the Cragside that we had begun to construct. Uh, we did indeed do all the work ourselves. No other person worked on this structure except us. We did not hire contractors. There's not anything like that. We did all the work ourselves from the footings, which I'm digging at there now. I'm 21 years old, 18, 19, 20, not 18, 20 or 21. That's four bulldogs ago. <laughs> to the archway, to the chimneys, all of it done by ourselves. So I hope today that George Nixon Black is out here now for you to know and to celebrate and to thank for his goodness and the house at Law of Jacob still exists. Thank you very much. <laughs>